You're listening to a live recorded teaching from the Sunday Gathering at the Heights Church in Denver, Colorado. We hope that this teaching is an encouragement to you. To find out more about the Heights Church, visit theheightsdenver.com. Good morning. Um, My name is Meredith Sell. I'm a member here at the Heights, and we're going to spend some time in God's Word together now. Today's teaching comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, or 10 through 31, not 11. (laughs) Um, the, The large numbers are the chapters, and the small numbers are the verses in the Bibles in front of you. Let's hear what God has to speak to us today. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. What I am saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't recall if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews asked for, ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, a righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for giving us the gift of your word. We ask that you speak clearly to us through it today. Help us to not just listen, but to truly obey it for our joy and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Meredith. Great work. That was a haul. Uh, It's good to be with you guys this morning. I'm Jonathan, uh, one of the pastors here at the Heights. And um, yeah, it's it's good to be with you. I want to start this morning um, by just like posing a question for you. 
Um, I want to start this morning by asking a big question. Now, it's not a, I'm going to have to wrestle this music stand. There we go. Um, it's, it's not a light question. This is a like coming in hot question on us, okay? What's wrong with the world? Like, what's wrong with the world? Like, more specifically, why do we see so many like problems in our world? Why do we see so much like disunity and sharp lines and frustration and anger and hatred in our world right now? Why? And and maybe more specifically, what's the solution to that? What do we do about it? Do we do anything about it? It can something be done about it. What's the solution? What's the solution to the specifically the disunity we see and even experience in our world? I mean, we, I think we all feel this, right? Like we could take this to basically any scale. We could take any group of people and we could see this happen. But let's, let's just think about our country, our, the culture uh, in which we live here in the U.S. for a minute. Culturally speaking, we're more polarized, we're more divided, we're more like we live in this us versus them no matter what the issue is. It's, we can make it an us versus them thing no matter what it might be right now. Like that, that's kind of the, the culture in which we live right now. And everything from how a virus should be handled, everything to how the economy should work, everything to... Uh, I don't know, you, 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 you think about everything. Think about the last few, the color of your skin, right? We're so divided as a culture, as a country. Everything, I mean, we could just go on and on and on. And then you take this, the reality that there's this thing called social media. How many of you guys are on social media? It's like a dumpster fire most of the time, isn't it? Right, like, it's like you take these things that we already like we feel like we can't even talk about openly because we don't know who's going to feel what about what. And then you, 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 it's like social media is like dumping diesel fuel on it, right? It's an echo chamber of the same ideas that you have with this like, I don't know, this viral nature of one thing that can just explode. And we find ourselves in this cultural moment that feels so divided. In fact, in 2021, at the end of 2021, Pew Research, which is a research institution, did this study. They surveyed people from 17 different modern countries, and uh, they, they asked the question, is your culture, is your country more or less divided post-COVID, all right? And uh, what 60% of people in those 17 countries said was, we believe our country is more divided post-virus than it was before, okay? Uh, you zoom into how Americans answered that question, and specifically, we were one of the countries surveyed And 88% of Americans agreed that we're more divided now than we were before the virus, okay? So, like, you don't need me to convince you. Like, it's never been more difficult. Like, how? this is just me being personal, personally. It's never been more difficult to walk across the street and get to know a neighbor who has, like, different yard signs in their yard than you have, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? Or maybe you're like, well, I don't have a yard sign, but they have a Black Lives Matter yard sign, and they have an all lives matter yard sign, and we both know that what all that means. And it's like, how do I go talk to anyone that is different than me, or might think different than me, or like feels different than me? And those things are so sharply divided. In fact, I I mean, the divides between social 
issues are more divided than they ever have been. The, the, the idea of like, like politics is so divisive in every level. We're so divided. It's hard to navigate the landmine cultural moment that we live in right now. And we all feel this in one way or another. So back to our question, like what's the solution to that? What do we do about that? The division, the, the disunity, even hatred that we see bubbling up around us in our culture. What do we do? And, and I think we could pretend like that doesn't exist inside the church. Like, I think we could pretend like it doesn't, but here's the thing. Like, we're so formed, and, and the Corinthians, as we're going to see, we're so formed by outside the church that the issues that were outside the church begin to seep and find their way inside the church, and we see divisions and unities not out there, but in here. In both subtle and overt ways. The church is supposed to be this safe haven, this, this like beautiful place where this stuff, sort of stuff doesn't happen. The church is supposed to be a place where we can get along and lock arms and sing kumbaya together, right? Well, yeah, we're divided. And we're disunified. So what's the solution? Is there a solution? Right? Well, the solution, I think, I think these things work together. But I think we can put all of our hope in policies to change the culture out there. I think we can put our our hope in new programs to change out there. I think we can put our hope in politicians, and I think we should vote, and we should do our civic duty, and we should be thoughtful in how we engage. But ultimately, those things aren't going to create the change that we long for. No, what we believe as Christians and here at the Heights Church is we believe that the solution to the disunity out there, which really is a pointer to the disunity that's in here, out there doesn't exist. It's all a bunch of in here's that make up out there, right? It's all, of our, it's all of us. We are culture. We are society. We are the U.S. It's in here that has to change before out there can change, before out there can see a difference. And so here's what we believe. We believe that the cross of Jesus Christ has been the only thing that's been able to unify people across the history of human landscape. We see that in the first century, and we believe that that can happen today. We believe that there is one solution, and it is Jesus' cross that brings all people together across a lot of differences. This year uh, at the Heights is the year of what we're calling life together. It's a communal value for our church. And we spent the first quarter of 2023 looking at Acts 2. Some of you are so happy that we're done with Acts 2. My community group was stoked about that. Um, but we spent, we're, and we were looking at this like ideal model, this template for what the church was supposed to look like, the church that Jesus had in mind. And then we come into 1 Corinthians and the, the, the rest of the year, and we're going to see like the antithesis of Acts 2, the total undoing of all good things that Acts 2 propped up. But here's the reality, here's the beauty of Corinthians, is it's real, it's honest, it feels approachable. It feels helpful for where we're at in our experiences. It's this very imperfect church. Let's even call it a jacked up church in first, this first Corinthian church, right? This Corinthian church, jacked up. But here's the thing that set it apart. Deeply loved by God. Like loved by God in the mess of its disunity, of its dysfunction. And we're going to see this. This theme is going to come back over and over and over. This is kind of our big idea for the whole theme of First Corinthians is this. God 
There we go. There it is. I didn't snap. That's what it was. Um, God loves us in our mess, but he loves us too much to leave us in it. God loves the Corinthian church in their dysfunctional disunity, but he loves them way too much to let them live in it and not to fester. And that's what we're going to see this morning in 1 Corinthians. The mess that we find ourselves in is that of division and disunity, not out there, but inside the church, inside. And what we're going to see is almost every week, we're going to see this week in and week out of of, of Corinthians, is that the problems out there begin to infiltrate their way in here, and the same disunity and divides and problems that we see out there begin to start functionally taking root in the church. And that's what we're going to come back to over and over and over, is that the outside culture begins to form the inside culture of the church. And we already know this. We talked about this last Sunday in First Corinthians, that the Corinthian culture, the, the, the culture that existed in Corinth, had a couple values here. They, they valued sex and play and money and vague spirituality and self far more than Jesus. And that infiltrate, that, those values begin to infiltrate their way into, into the church and they wreak a, 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 absolute havoc inside the church. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And I think this isn't, the, this isn't only a threat that exists on the pages of 1 Corinthians. This is a threat that we have to look at and we have to navigate and we, we have to work through as a church today in 2023. So the vision for the church is that it would be a safe haven from the cutthroat, scary, mean, divided world that we live and work in. And the cross of Jesus Christ has historically been the only thing that can create something like that. And so at the beginning of our passage this morning, just as Meredith read, uh, Paul starts out this way in verse 10. He says, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters. Notice he says, says brothers and sisters, very insider language, twice here. It's been reported to me about you by the tattletale, by members of Chloe's people, that there is what? Can you guys say this, this word? Rivalry, there is rivalry among you. There's rivalry among you. And what we're going to see Paul do through the remainder of this passage, there's quite a few things we're going to work through, is that Paul here solves the problem of this rivalry through this division, through all of these problems, through one solution. He comes back to it over and over and over. You're going to hear, I'm tired of saying it already from the nine, and you're going to get tired of hearing me say it. It's the cross of Jesus Christ, period. It's the great unifier of all people. This is the big idea. This is the thread throughout the whole passage. It's, it's the, cro- the cross of Jesus Christ that is the greatest unifier of all people, all right? And here's the roadmap. Here's how you're going to see that play out. Is uh, We're going to see that the cross gives us a new identity in Jesus over the rivalry that, that tends to come in from the outside, from our culture. The cross of Jesus Christ seems foolish, but we're going to choose the foolishness of the cross over cultural wisdom. And then the third is anonymity and weakness of the cross over choosing cultural influence and power. That's the roadmap. That's where Paul's taking us 
and it's going to unfold step after step here, all right? So um, let's jump in here. Let's look at this first one. The first marker is identity in Jesus over cultural rivalry. Now, remember, in verse 11, um, Paul said that word rivalry. I'm, it's being reported to me that you guys are competing over things, that you're, you're, you're seeing one another, not as brothers and sisters, as I've called you, but as rivals, as someone to be beaten, someone to be like overcome, someone to, to win over, right? And so here's, here's how he continues in verse 12. He says, what I'm saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul. One of you, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, that's also Peter, the apostle Peter, or I belong to Christ. And then he asks these rhetorical questions. Wait, 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 wait. Is Christ divided? Wait, was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? That's, that's who's writing it. He says this, I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius. They must have been legit. He's like, I'm glad, I, I'm glad none of you can make that claim. I did, however, baptize the household of Stephanas. But beyond that, I don't recall if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with eloquent speech. I'm not trying to woo you with, like, sounding smart. No. No. So that, purpose clause, the cross of Christ will, will not be emptied of its full effect. I don't want to distract you with fancy language as to take a chance of screwing this all up because I want you to see that it's the cross of Christ that does everything. It holds all the power. It's not in how I talk or the way I talk or the good arguments I make. It's all about the cross of Jesus Christ. And so what's happening here, I just want to paint a picture for you. Like let's, let's take this out of like First Corinthian language. Let's take this into our language here. What's happening here is this five-year-old church, the church in Corinth is five years old. Paul started this church five years prior had developed these factions and divisions, as we've already discussed here, specifically around who they were associated with. So the, it, in the church, there were people, there were these groups forming that were more identifying with these figureheads than they were Jesus. Right? So here's what, here, basically, in this Corinthian culture, we see that who you're associated adds tremendous value to your life, like in the broader culture. Like, it's an honor-shame culture. If you're connected with the right people, you'll have, you'll have more value in society. You'll have a better way through, through life, and that will serve you well. And so that thinking had infiltrated into the church where people were like, well, no, I'm with so-and-so, I'm with so-and-so, in order that they may be perceived as more valuable, right? And so here, to even take this one step closer, we've got a great chart. Now, I'll say this. I, I, I spent probably, yeah, that's okay, Chris, go ahead. I spent probably like 30 minutes trying to make this into a Venn diagram because I've always wanted to make a Venn diagram. And it's still half finished on my whiteboard in my office and it just came all unraveled on me. Um, I even had Meg, one of our staff, come in. I was like, all right, help me figure this one piece out. And we couldn't. And I was like, I'm forcing this. So that's just Corbin's spiritual gift. Corbin works in flowy diagrams. I work in charts, okay? Um, so here's what's happening. So we've got Paul, Apollos, and Cephas or Peter. And here, here's, here's what's happening. People are associating with these people. They're saying, well, I'm, I'm of like, I'm like Paul's apprentice here. I'm Apollos' apprentice. Or I'm, I'm with like Peter. I'm with the Peter line of thought in the church, right? That's what's happening here. And the people who said, I'm with Paul, they're like, hey, listen, I like, 
I'm with Paul. He founded this church. Like, I'm like on the inside of the inside of the inside because I was here with Paul when he started this thing. Like, I, I've got special privileges. I'm with Paul. If Paul, who's probably getting worked up about this, he's like, Paul, in, in, this, in, in their association with him, was Paul's all about grace. Paul's like, grace, 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 grace. He's the grace guy. And so it's all about what you feel. It's all about feeling loved by God. It's all about like, like living into the grace of God. It's all about your heart. These are heart people. And the problem with them, grace-only people, is that they were getting a little bit reckless with their grace. These are the, these are the people, the people who were all about grace. Are the, they were the people telling themselves after their hookups and hangovers, hey, listen, man, you can never outstand the grace of God every weekend. Like, they were taking license with the grace of God, and they were seeing this is the only theological factor that they need to think through. This is the only thing, right? Like, God only relates to me through grace, and so I can do whatever I want. I can live however I want because God will forgive me, which is true. But if that's the only thing we believe, they're just stuck there. You're just stuck there. These are the grace-only people. But So some people were like, well, I'm with Paul. Others were like, no, 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 no. Well, I belong to Apollos. I'm, I'm a much more astute, theologically like motivated person here. These people were theology folks. They loved the study. They loved debate. And they probably didn't have very many friends either, right? You guys know the type. They were telling the grace people, they were telling the Paul people, like, guys, if you would just read your Bible more, if you would just study theology with me, if you would just listen to more podcasts, you could change. And for the Apollos people, it was all about what you think or what you know. These people were really formed by the, the, the Corinthian culture of like high intellect. It's all about your head. It's all about what you know. And, and the problem is if you're only this, you're pretty harsh with theology, which is why you don't have very many friends. And these were the people that, I'll just tell you, they were kind of tough to have in community group, all right? Like, they were tough to have in community group. But then we have this other group. We have the Peter people, good old Peter people. These people probably were coming from a Jewish background. They knew the law inside out. They loved the law. They like saw religion through the law. Like that was, that was their thing. And they were thinking, guys, quit sitting around and not doing anything. Quit sitting around just thinking. And actually, let's get to work and do some stuff. Like you guys are not doing anything. It's all about what you do. You've got to earn this thing, right? That's, those are the Peter people. You've got to organize your life and your schedule and your calendar. You've got to go apprentice yourself under Peter. I mean, Jesus, right? It's like the apprentice, like I've got to apprentice myself. It's all about the way I organize my life and do the right thing and run the right play. That's how you make it. That's how you do this whole thing. And you can see where these rivalries were bubbling up in this Corinthian church because these people were perceived as kind of lazy because they never did anything. These people were kind of mean and harsh with their theology. And these people were just too busy. Right? And these divisions are popping up in the church. And here's what Paul, I love this about Paul. Paul doesn't say anything negative about any of these people. These are all people that he himself, Apollos, Peter, all 
Like, none of which he says, these are bad people. You shouldn't model them or, or emulate them. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't say that they're wrong, but rather points that the Corinthians rivalry is the problem. Because we need all three of these, right? Like, this is a good balance. That's why there's a fourth group in here that, that Paul alludes to, and he says, some say, I belong to Christ. Apparently, those were the, the, folks, the folks who were actually getting it, which is a small number of people. Maybe a quarter of them were getting it, and they weren't causing a mess, Right? But the cross of Jesus Christ is the thing that centers all of us. It's the thing that tears down every faction and every group of people from feeling like they can step on the others because their version of Christianity is better than the others. But at the cross, everything becomes level. Paul says, listen, did I die for your sins? Were you baptized in the Father, Paul, and Holy Spirit's name? No. Did Jesus die? Yes, it was Jesus. It was, it was Jesus who died and was raised from the dead for you, not me or Apollos or Peter. Jesus on the cross is the greatest unifier of all people. On the cross, Jesus says your intellect doesn't save you, your serving doesn't save you, your ability to obey doesn't save you, your ability to like, think of everything through the lens of God's grace does not save you. No, the cross does, period. The cross of Jesus Christ saves you. It's the one thing, so stop fighting. Quit creating divisions in the church around the wrong thing. Jesus over rivalry. Jesus over rivalry. The second thing we see that is a marker of the cross being the greatest unifier of all people is this. It's the, cross, it's the foolishness of the cross over cultural wisdom. It's choosing the foolishness or the perceived foolishness of the crosses, which we'll see here in just a second over what the culture says is most wise, of what's true. Paul builds on this idea that the cross is the great unifier of all people in verse 18. Pay attention, look at this. It says, for the word of the cross is, can you guys say this word? Foolishness. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, to those that don't get it, those that don't see it of all that's happening in the cross. But it is the power of God to those who are being saved. It's valuable to the people that see it and are like, wow, that's what the cross is? Oh my gosh. And if you're wondering, like, what's the word for foolish here? Like, surely it doesn't mean like stupid, but that's exactly what it means. It means lack of judgment, right? That, that's what the word foolish here means. It means lack of good sense. So, the word of the cross is stupid to those who are perishing. It's a better way of saying this, or another way of saying this. It, it lacks good sense. And culturally speaking, you know, Paul's writing to this group of people who are, who are all about cultural wisdom. Like, the Corinthian cultural marker there was wisdom. And it's like, you've got to, like, enlighten yourself. You have to have these self-revelations and, and, and if you're doing that, if you're, if you're rising up in cultural wisdom, that is the way to like functional salvation in your life. And what the Corinthians valued, uh, how this enlightenment happened was valuing the things of the culture, right? And actually Corbin taught on this last week. These were the four cultural markers of Corinth that Corbin talked about. They loved sex. They loved money. They loved recreation, play, pleasure, and they loved spirituality, vague spirituality. Whatever works for you, great. And so 
This, this was the backdrop for the Corinthian church. These were the things that they're wrestling through. It's, do I choose this, or do I choose this foolish way of the cross? It looks foolish compared to this, right? That's what they were wrestling with. In Corinth, wisdom said, be sexually promiscuous. Why? It doesn't matter. Do whatever you want. Have sex with whoever you want to have sex with. Scheme to make as much money as you possibly can. Step on people. It doesn't matter. Like It's all about creating financial security for yourself. Prioritize play and pleasure above anything else. These are of your utmost importance. This is the way to wisdom. And then, really, possess a spirituality in which you are always right. There's no no's in your spirituality. There's no correction in your spirituality. You're always right. Live it up. Do whatever you want. That's the backdrop. That's the way to cultural wisdom in Corinth. And remember, we... We talked about this, how those values had begun to creep into the church in Corinth, and that's what we're going to spend the rest of this whole book talking about. That's what's happening here, into the values of the people of Corinth. And you've, you've got the church in Corinth wrestling with this. They're like teetering on this. Like, you've got to imagine this. They're wrestling like, is Jesus worth it? That's really the question. Is Jesus worth it? If I live like the culture says is wise and enjoyable, my life turns into a total mess. And they're experiencing that. But if I like fixate on this Jewish guy who 20 years ago died in Jerusalem, like I seem like a complete idiot. This seems foolish. That's the, that's the conundrum that the Corinthians were in in this moment. We look like total fools to the culture and the world around us. And Paul's saying, yeah. It doesn't make a whole lot of logical sense. But listen, he flipped some things on their head here. The killing of this innocent man named Jesus who died this brutal death at the hands of Romans, uh, these Roman soldiers seemed completely unnecessary, right? The, the Corinthian culture says, why does that matter for anything? That seems unnecessary, ineffective. Like what best case scenario, a few people get inspired and live radically after that. Like that's best case scenario. That's, that's looking at this from a cultural perspective. But Paul flips this whole thing on its head. Paul's writing them to remind them to step back and look. He's saying, listen, listen, if you know Jesus, if you've met Jesus, Corinthians, which this church had, these people knew Jesus, if you've met Jesus, man, the words of the cross are powerful to you. This all makes complete sense to you if you know Jesus. To the, to the watching world, this seems like utter nonsense. But to you who've been shaped by it, who've seen your desires change, who've seen your lives change, like an Oliver who was standing here a minute ago, when you're Oliver, the word of the cross isn't foolish anymore. It's the wisdom of God. It's beautiful. The word of the cross is powerful. It changes us. It changes our desires, our motives. It turns everything on its head, and it actually begins to make sense. We see what God is doing in this one unbelievable moment in human history on the cross. We see that the wisdom of God was actually unfolding on the cross of Jesus Christ. The way to salvation, to eternal joy and pleasure isn't found through sexual experiences. It isn't found through money. It isn't found through status or intellect. It isn't found through recreation and play and spirituality, but rather through the death and the resurrection of one man, Jesus. And the cross became something so much more to those people who saw the cross for what it was. It was the wisdom of God unfolding before them that had so much value 
value. It had so much necessity. It's the only way to, to life eternal was through this cross. So of course it was necessary. It was so effective. Ultimately, it was so wise. And Paul's grabbing the Corinthians' attention through this. And he's reminding them what Christians believe. He, he continues this and he actually quotes Isaiah here. He says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. It's going to like show that their wisdom isn't all that wise. And I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. And then he asks these rhetorical questions. Where is the one who is wise? Where, where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? In other words, he's saying, isn't it clear that the pathway that the culture of Corinth is offering as wise, isn't it clear that it does not lead to where you think it goes? It doesn't lead to salvation. It doesn't lead to lasting joy. It doesn't lead to the fullness of life. Isn't it clear that the wisdom of the world isn't really that wise at all, but it is actually what's foolish? He continues in verse 21. He says, For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who, can you guys say that, believe? He was pleased to save those who believe, not who had all their ducks in a row, not who did the religious performance well, not those who could like rattle off every fine theological point. No, no, no. He was pleased to save those who believed through the foolishness of what's being preached, the cross. Like, that is the way to God, is through the, what is perceived as foolishness, which actually, when you've known it and experienced it and see it and believe on it, is actually the most life-changing thing there ever was. It actually is the wisdom of God unfolded. Unbelievable. Verse 22, For the Jews ask for a sign. They want to see a miracle. And the Greeks seek wisdom. The Jews say, well, I need a sign to show me. And the Greeks say, well, I need to understand it. But, what, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks. See the unifying factor that people are cross-cultural divides, Jews and Greeks. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's wisdom is stronger than human strength. And I think here's what we have to wrestle with, church family. When we think about this, we think about the very thing that the Corinthians were teetering on right now. Do I go all in on the cultural wisdom of the day? Do I believe that that's going to lead to life eternal? Do I believe that's going to give me what I'm longing for? Or do I put my faith in this one thing that seems pretty foolish but actually can give me life? And that's the thing that we have to wrestle with. That's the thing that we have to think about this morning personally the church in Corinth was so wrapped up in the culture had been so drawn out by what seemed to be wise living because it was everyone was doing it yet it's revealed through this passage that this whole thing is upside down what's foolish to the world is actually the pathway to life and wisdom and what seems to be wise living in the world is actually a dead end street and foolish and we asked the question last week, Corbin did, is how does the culture, 
How does the world have its grip on you and how are you being drawn out by it and believing that the pathway to life and joy and salvation is ultimately through cultural wisdom? Like, what is that for you? What are you believing right now? And can it hold water? Can it give you what you're actually looking for? That's the question. I know for me, if, I, if I'm honest with you guys, I've been thinking about this this week, wrestling with this passage, of the four values or the few, four markers of the church in Corinth, uh, pleasure and play is something um, that I oftentimes believe can bring me lasting joy that only Jesus can. Like I put my faith in my next adventure. I put my faith in my hobby. I put my faith in these things that are good things, but they're not ultimate things. I put my faith in, and, and I forget that I was made for so much more. I forget that the life that I have right now is just the doorway into life eternal. This isn't it. This isn't all there is to life. And I'll, I'm tempted to take every moment and every opportunity and every hobby and every recreational outing and wring out every ounce of joy and pleasure I can get out of it thinking, this is it. I got to get it all now. If I don't get it now, I'll, I'll be miserable. But the problem is you come back from a weekend trip, a ski trip or a camping trip or for me, a hunting trip. And I come back and I'm like, well, I'm not any more full than I was before. It was, I had a good time. But you know what will fix me? probably another trip right we do this in in every facet right maybe for you it's not play or pleasure maybe for you it's money it's the comfort and the security of finances it's believing the cultural wisdom narrative that insulating yourself with layer and layer and layer of financial security will lead and put you in a position of power and salvation functionally now you would never, you would never say my money saves me but functionally, that's what, the way we operate. Maybe it's money for you. Maybe it's not money. Maybe, maybe for you, it's something different. Maybe for, for you, it's, uh, it's sex. It's sexual experiences for you. And for you, it's like, it's the next sexual experience that you have. It's a belief that orgasm equals salvation. Functionally right? And it's like, that's it. Like if I can just have a specific sexual experience or more sexual experiences, it's that. It's believing that. And it leaves us empty and longing on the other side of that every single time. But maybe it's not that for you. Maybe for you, it's a vague spirituality. It's a religious system, a structure built around yourself. It's this, it's this pursuit of the authentic self that what, that we surround ourselves, we build a religious system around all the things that we think will make us happy and they never tell us no and they never tell us to repent and they never tell us to turn a different way. And we've fabricated this like spirituality around us and we've built a religion out of it. And I think the question for all that, for, for sex, for money, for play, pleasure, recreation, for sp spirituality is like, is it working for you? Like, how's it going? Because for me, I can tell you like, it, it leaves me longing for the next one, which is foolish. That lacks good sense. That's actually stupid, right? But, but the invitation here is into something so much greater. I, I've been thinking a lot about this this week. Um, it, it's a decision I think we have to make all the, all the time if you're a Christian. You make this decision all the time. And it, 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 it's something like this. Do I believe it's better 
for me to be perceived as a fool by broader culture and inherit eternal life? Is that more important to me than living into the cultural wisdom narrative and losing my life? I think that's the crux here. That's the crux of the Corinthian church. That's our, that's our question. And I've really been wrestling with that a lot this week. In fact, I was thinking about this. I was thinking about what Jesus says. He says this in a couple different gospel accounts, but we'll read Mark 8 here. He says this in Mark 8. He says this in Mark 8. There it is. I think that's the wrong direction. There we go. That's the one I was looking for. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Okay, whoever thinks that I'm going to store up everything I can in this life, every sexual experience, all the money I can get my arms around, every, every like recreational opportunity, everything. I'm going to get my arms all the way around it. Whoever tries to save his life will eventually lose it because those things don't last. But whoever loses his life forfeits the value of all those things over for something else. Whoever loses their life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world yet lose his life? And that's the question I think I've been wrestling with this week. The wild thing about all those markers of culture is that worldly wisdom, this narrative that we're living in and being influenced by, never leads to like value communally. Like worldly wisdom actually divides us and separates us from each other in the way that God created us to live together. And honestly, the end of all those things are selfishness, not life together. And so, you know, church family, I just think like this is something for us to really wrestle with. Like if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit's probably already brought something up in your mind already. And maybe you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian and um, you're considering you're wrestling with faith in Jesus right now. You're new to this or you're new like this time around. Maybe you had a faith, a faith experience earlier in your life and you're like exploring faith again right now. I think the thing that the beauty of the cross, the leveling nature of the cross, the unifying nature of the cross for anyone who would come and like receive Jesus is that it, it's an invitation to come and stop performing. Like we don't have to say the right things or do the right things or earn the right things. Like it's this invitation to, to not have to like balance and juggle a facade of who we are and making sure that we believe all the right things publicly. It's this invitation to come and take the pressure off and find joy like lasting joy and find rest and find some satisfaction that's found not in here but, but outside of ourselves. Our culture often tells us that like the problem that we experience is out there and the solution's in here. But what the cross reminds us is that like the problems that we see out there are because of what's in here. And what the cross reminds us is that if we look in here to save ourselves and to change and to find newness and fullness and joy, like we're going to be disappointed all the time. We actually need something outside of us. We need the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's the reality. That's what, that's what Paul's reminding the church in Corinth. The cross is the greatest unifier of all people. It welcomes every single person. Because none of us come with a leg up on anyone else to the cross. 
we all come with our heaps and heaps of sin. Like all of us. And that's the beauty of the cross. Yeah. So we've seen two of our reasons why the cross is the greatest unifier of all people. But our third reason is the cross. On the cross, we see Jesus anonymous and weak. We see that a value is an anonymity and weakness over cultural influence and power. There's a lot we could say here, but in verse 26, this is where Paul picks back up. He says, brothers and sisters, there it is again. Consider your calling. He's saying, remember where you came from? You guys aren't fancy. You guys like don't have it all together. Like remember your origin. Remember where you came from. Not many of you are wise from human perspective. Like you guys are not, I don't know if this is a real dig. Maybe like you guys are kind of dumb. I don't know. Like, but remember, you weren't that wise from human perspective. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you from noble birth. Instead, that was the qual- those are all the qualifiers. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world. Foolish in the world. What is viewed as nothing. He's taken that thing, anonymity and weakness, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. So that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption, in order, as it is written, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast, my screen just cut out, sorry, in the Lord. Let the one who boasts, boast not in himself, not in what you've brought to the table, but in the Lord. Anonymity and weakness over influence and power. The way of salvation is not one of power and prestige. In fact, this whole idea of the kingdom as an upside-down kingdom, that the entrance into God's kingdom is not through power and prestige and stepping on other people, but it's through humility and a, low, and a lowly cross. That's the entryway. That's the way of this kingdom that Jesus is inviting us into. Anonymity and weakness. The way of power and success and influence isn't through stepping on other people in self-promotion and Instagram momplexes, but through the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul's getting at here in these last few verses. Everything that is ours, we didn't earn. We didn't bring to the table. We didn't earn a thing. We were given. We were weak and despised and foolish. Yet God saw us and he loved us and he valued us. Not based on what we brought to the table, but based on his love for us in the beginning, before, before we thought of him. Verse 30 says this, back to verse 30 real quick. It says, it is from him, from God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness. Jesus became our righteousness. Jesus is the one who created our right standing before God. He's the one who enables us to even relate to God at all. It's through the cross of Jesus that we can actually be sanctified. That's a way, that's a way of saying change. It's through the cross that we're changed. It's through the cross that we're saved. This is redemption. It's through the cross that all this is possible. We're all given these things by God through the cross. It's the one thing that we all have in common. We've earned nothing, and we're given everything through the cross. 
ultimately what we're looking at, ultimately what we're looking for through our achievements, through our attaining of power and influence and, and status, all, all those things that we're longing for to be acknowledged and known is, is all built on a very fragile foundation, something that can just be taken away so quickly. It's built on other people's opinions and likes and judgments. But in Jesus, we can receive the things that we long for. True and lasting safety. Deep, sacrificial love. And a bright future. It's secure. That's what's found in Jesus. This is the great unifier of all people. This is what welcomes anyone, anyone into life with God as the cross, which doesn't discriminate against anyone. It's the most inclusive invitation there ever was. The cross of Jesus Christ. It's the great unifier. The cross gives us the status of son and daughter of God. The cross gives us the security of eternal life. The cross gives us the power of, re of resurrection from the dead. The cross gives us the love of God. The cross is the great unifier of all people. And that's what Paul's reminding the church. Don't be divided. Don't be rivals. Don't step on one another. Don't seek influence and power the way the world does. Don't value the wrong things. Come to the cross. Remember the cross. There's no one that the cross is more or less effective for. There's no one who, who needs the cross more than anyone else. No, the cross strips it all bare and reminds us that we are all the same at the cross. At the foot of Jesus, we're all the same through weakness and anonymity. In fact, Jesus, uh, or Paul kind of reminds us this of Jesus. He says this in Philippians chapter 2. In fact, Jason read this for us earlier. This is Paul writing to the church of Philippi. He says this, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Think about your life like Jesus was thinking about his life as he was heading to the cross. Who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, to be used, to be leveraged. He didn't. But rather, instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he'd come as a man, he humbled himself, anonymity and weakness. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The ultimate emblem, the ultimate symbol of anonymity, the ultimate symbol and experience of humility laid bare for me and for you, inviting us near, inviting us into life with God through this one act, the cross of Christ. For this reason, notice this, this is the pathway to exaltation. For this reason, God highly exalted him, that's Jesus, and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. This is the upside-down upside nature of cultural wisdom being turned on its head. This is it. It's the way of Jesus. It's the way of the cross. It's the great unifier of all people. And that's really the invitation for us this morning. On the cross, Jesus was divided so that we would no longer be divided. On the cross, Jesus became the fool so that we might see the wisdom of God. 
on the cross, Jesus was weak so that we could possess the power of the resurrection. The cross is the way. Weakness, anonymity, over-influence, overpower. So here's what we're going to do in, in just a second. Corbin's going to come up. We're going to respond this morning. And, and we're going to take just a few minutes and create some space for us to wrestle and, and grapple with, is the cross good news to us? And uh, back, kind of back to our questions, we were thinking about what's wrong with the world and what's the solution. I think it's easy to think the problem's out there. I think it's easy to say, well, it's in policies, it's in politicians, it's out there. It's, the, it's these other problems, they're out there. But I think we can't ever, that, that's never going to, we're never going to solve that problem, I'll tell you. We've been trying to do that for how many thousands of years? But in 1908, uh, a philosopher, uh, theologian, G.K. Chesterton, wrote into the London Times, and he said this. This was the, there was a, there was a, an, a question for people to write into. What is wrong with the world? All right. And G.K. writes in, kind of clever, and he says, I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. I'm the problem. The problem that we see out there actually originated in here for all of us. What's wrong with the world? And so what we're going to do is we're going to spend some time practicing G.K. Chesterton's line, I am. We're going to not look out, but we're going to look inward for a few minutes this morning. We're going to consider whether or not we have chosen rivalry over Jesus here and out there. We're going to take a few minutes to evaluate, have we decided that living according to our culture is more valuable to us than the foolishness of the cross? And lastly, we're going to spend some time thinking about how we think we can attain power and influence. Is it by stepping on other people, being harsh, or is it through the way of the cross in humility and anonymity and weakness? So I'm going to pray for us, church family, and then we're going to go into a time of response. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's relevant to us. We thank you that the words to the church in Corinth are equally applicable to us here, the church in Denver, 2,000 years later. We thank you that you love us in our mess, but you love us way too much to leave us in our mess. And we're, we're reaching up out of our mess saying, Jesus, we, we need your help. So would you give us hearts that are tender towards you right now? Would you give us hearts that are eager to repent and turn to you? Turn from our sin. Turn from our rivalry. Turn from our stepping on one another for power and influence. Would we be people that our people of the cross. We would be a people of the cross, God. God, we thank you for this word and we pray that we would respond however, however you're prompting us in our spirit right now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.